Hi everyone, welcome to Pod Academy. My name's Craig Barfoot. Today I'm talking with psychologist Gina Perry about her book Behind the Shock Machine, the untold story of the notorious Milgram psychology experiments. For those of you who aren't familiar with them, the Milgram psychology experiments were a series of experiments conducted at Yale University in the 1960s that popularly conclude that 65% of people when told to by an authority figure, would give a complete stranger enough electric shocks to kill them. Now, these dramatic results and their implications to society are a discussion for another day, because Gina's book has focused on the story behind the experiments, and it was my pleasure to speak to her about this. Gina Perry, thank you very much for talking to me. Hey, look, um, I guess your book is in some ways a critique on science as much as it is a journey of discovery about these particular Milgram experiments. I'm really interested to find out how your views on the nature of science and scientific research changed over the writing of this book. Oh, well, that's a great question because it actually was the thing I least expected um, in the sense that I never thought I would was I was setting out to write a story about the sciences, the Milgram experiments, because I'd always assumed the scientific results were a given. And it wasn't until I started talking to people about their memories of the experiment that I realised that I actually had to go back and check the original materials. And of course, that turned up a lot of questions for me in terms of what we call social psychology, why we uh, accept that some things that happen are experimentally true, um, how you can generalise from a laboratory, for example, to the world at large. These, for me, were very unchallenged assumptions that I had absorbed through my training as a psychologist and particularly in a psychology degree that there is this um, sense, well certainly I can only talk about my own qualifications, but certainly when I was doing a psychology degree, there was no sense that you were stepping outside the discipline to look at what it was doing. You were inculcated into the methods and the techniques and the language and you absorbed all that as part of your training, almost, in my case anyway, really unthinkingly. I did not reflect on that. So for me, when I started my research, which was simply to find some people who took part in the Milgram experiment and to hear their stories, I didn't expect that that would take me in the direction that it did. And I certainly didn't expect that I would question the scientific experiments. But as you've picked up, I obviously did. And I began to see particularly these high-profile very dramatic experiments of the 1950s and 1960s in social psychology as what they were. And that is that a scientific experiment like that can only ever be a metaphor. And uh, we invest them with a truth and authority that often goes way beyond what was demonstrated in the lab. So for me, I began to see that science, as much as anything, is a story about how stories are told. And there is as much persuasion and rhetoric in scientific writing as there is in literature or poetry or or anything else that I can think of where you are trying to persuade your audience to believe in a particular thing. And, and, And Milgram, I think, was a very powerful persuader. 
Can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by uh, that it's a, a metaphor? Well, when you think about Stanley Milgram's obedience experiment, it was actually involved a group of people in a laboratory with a machine in 1962. But ever since, it's been described in the same breath as the behaviour of Nazis during the Holocaust. But obviously it was not the behaviour of Nazis during the Holocaust that was being studied in Milgram's lab. It was the behaviour of some men in New Haven in 1962. So that's what I mean about it being used as a metaphor. People conflate those two events so readily that Milgram's experiment has come to be seen as an insight into behaviour of people during the Holocaust. And, you know, I think those unthinking assumptions need to be queried. I don't mean that they're wrong, but you need to query them. Take them on board less unconsciously. I'm also very interested that after the experiments had been conducted and he had all of his data, it it took him quite a long time to come up with a theory to explain uh, what he'd found. Why do you think it took him so long? Oh, well... Yes, you're right. It took him nearly 10 years. It did take him 10 years to publish a book in which he outlined his theory. And I think it took him so long because he started the experiments without a theory. He didn't start the experiments with a hypothesis. And so I think what happened was that he was faced with an enormous amount of data, set over 700 experiments, all audio taped, boxes and boxes of records and comments from people and analyses and I think it was a matter of trying to pull something together out of that enormous amount of information into a single theory that worked. I think it was difficult for him to and then he wrote about this himself. It was very difficult for him to come up with something to explain what had happened in his lab. And, you know, what I think what's so interesting is that most leading Milgram experts will agree that Milgram's theory is the weakest part of his work. Okay. Can I actually get you just to, uh, in a nutshell, define his theory for me? Sure. He used the term agentic state to describe what happens to people in his lab. And he, in using that term, he's only referring to people who went to maximum voltage on the machine, that is, the people who were obedient. And what he said was that when people are faced with an authority figure, they go into an agentic state where they give their will over to a higher authority and they slavishly and blindly follow orders without pangs of conscience. Uh, It sounded to me almost as if what he was saying was that we become zombies and we, we actually lose ourselves in some way. So a, it didn't, uh, it didn't explain what he observed in his lab and what I heard people going through in his lab. A lot of Milgram subjects who went to 450 volts argued with the experimenter. They offered to swap places. They tried all sorts of strategies to get the experimenter to terminate the experiment. So there was, I, I didn't hear, I heard very little slavish obedience. But secondly, it doesn't account for the people who disobeyed. So Milgram's theory doesn't account for the behaviour of a significant proportion of people in those experiments who defied the experimenter. 
in the mountains of literature that has been written about this since that period, is there a, a, an, an analysis, an interpretation of these experiments that you find more satisfactory? Yes, yes. Uh, Don Mixon uh, was a man who I interviewed here in Australia who was an American academic who did a replication of the Milgram experiments uh, or he did his own version of the Milgram experiments, I should say. And his theory was, in observing the experiments, uh, his own version of them, was that when you think about the scenario in Milgram's lab, you had an experimenter who is a Yale employee, who the subjects think is a professor, and you have a man in the room next door. And what Mixon found was that there was this incredible situation happening in the lab that was highly ambiguous, that subjects on one hand could hear a man complaining in the room next door, but what they could see was a professor in a lab coat impassively and calmly instructing them to continue. And Nixon's view was people, even you can say even unconsciously, people sense that what you do is you rely on the sensory evidence in front of you. You are in an Ivy League university, which is unlikely to be asking you to harm someone else. And you have an experimenter who's an authoritative person who is not reacting and not responding to the cries of the man in the room next door. So Nixon's view was that people were trying to do good, that is, they were thinking that by uh, paying attention to the cues from the experimenter, everything would be okay. And I, I found that a very appealing explanation because it recognises the ambiguity and the conflict and the stress involved in that situation and it applies to everybody, whether they went to maximum voltage on the machine or they broke off. It, it situates the experimenter as a key figure in that experiment in shaping people's reactions, not in the way that we normally think. So do you think then that the, the, the Milgram experiments can be used at all? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think the Milgram experiments are a great story for us about how we should be critical of the stories that scientists tell. And what function these uh, stories have in our disciplines? What role they play for us? Why they become powerful? Why we believe them? Why we're so uncritical? Um, all of those things, I think, are really important questions. And they make us better consumers of science. They make us better in our engagement with science. And they make for better science and scientists, I think. Okay, so you, you don't see any validity in the results at all? I think the experiment, having listened to all that material and having done years of research in the archives, I think that there is an enormous amount of material there and we can draw lots of conclusions depending on particular point of view. So as for an overall conclusion, I think what you can say that Milgram's experiment showed us is that some people, in some circumstances, can be bullied and coerced into doing things that they don't feel happy about doing. 
And I don't think that's a profound insight and I certainly don't think that we needed Milgram's experiment to tell us that. I'm, I'm very interested in why it is, for example, no attention has been paid to people who disobeyed in the Milgram experiment. And when you look at Milgram's experiment, there were not one variation but 24. And each variation had a different script and different actors and a different setup. When I looked at those 24 variations, in over half of them, 60% of people disobeyed the experimenter. So overall, when you look at that data, you don't just look at that first experiment that made Milgram so famous. You look at the, the whole 24. You end up with quite a different picture. And, and my, I'm interested there in why it is that social psychology has focused on the dis, uh, sorry, the obedient subjects and not on what it is that helps people resist. What about the, uh, the replications of the experiment that were done in, you mentioned Australia, but uh, also I think in Italy and Germany? I'm wary of using the word replica, uh, replications because I think that if you think about that word, it implies a careful copy of an original experiment that reproduces the same results. That's what I think of when I think of replications. So, again, the language we use around Milgram's experiment, people will often say to me, but the experiment's been replicated around the world. Actually, there have been attempts to repeat a version or versions of Milgram's experiment in different countries around the world over the last five decades, and the results have been very varied. So, for example, there was a replication done in Australia in the early 70s, but it was an experiment that wasn't the same as Milgram's. Actually, there was they inserted another step in the process, so they were looking at a different um, role for people in the experiment. Actually, in Australia, the obedience uh, rates were lower than Milgram's, but he reported them as being higher. Mm. Um, so how how much lower were they? Uh, I can't tell you off the top of my head, um, but they were they were definitely uh, lower. And uh, so, again, we have this. People talk about replications as if Milgram's experiment has been verified by other versions. You have to look at where they're conducted and what the rates were like. And I think it's what we, what's very interesting about that is that we talk about Milgram's research um, being applicable around the world. That sort of obliterates the effects of cultural differences, uh, different circumstances and political um, atmospheres and particular times in history are obviously going to affect people's behaviour at different times. But yes, definitely, um, I think there would be more replications if people could get ethical approval. There would be more attempted repeats of Milgram's experiment if people could get ethical approval, but that's much more difficult today. There was the uh, the 2006 uh, replication from um, Professor Jerry Berger, was it? Yeah. Um, and his findings were quite similar to Milgram's. Well, uh, yes, and I think what's interesting about that experiment is whether or not we call it an experiment. It was actually produced for television, and uh, if you look at the experiment itself, 
Berger's subjects were the experiment actually stopped at 150 volts because what Berger found was that you could what he argued was that Milgram's subjects what they how they behaved at 150 volts would predict how they would behave in the rest of the experiment. So none of Berger's subjects were allowed to go to the maximum voltage, which was 450 volts. So we have uh, that's a good example of an experiment that's described as a replication, but methodologically is very different to the original. And uh, finally, Gina, how has your reviewing of the Milgram experiments affected your own research and the way that you conduct your research? I think it's completely changed my view of the profession. Uh, And in particular, it's changed my view of social psychology in the sense that I think I'm much more sceptical now about the function of these kinds of stories in professional training. So I think I'm more aware now than I've ever been of querying why it is particular stories, for example, are reproduced year after year in textbooks. It makes me wary of what kinds of things are reported in newspapers and are blogged about around the world when it comes to the latest psychological research, what what basis there is for psychological claims to new knowledge. I think that's really the question that I've come up against time and again. What basis are there for these claims of new knowledge and how can we verify or judge whether or not those claims uh, can be validated. Gina, it was, a, it was a very, very interesting read, and thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, and thank you. Gina Perry is the author of the book Behind the Shock Machine, the untold story of the notorious Milgram psychology experiments. You've been listening to Pod Academy. My name's Craig Barfoot.